We're back. It's the Sagabit Swinging Report Show. Get ready for Sega news and commentary with George and Barry. Hello and welcome to episode 69 of the Segabit Swing and Report Show. I'm Barry, and I'm going to be going solo tonight. George is off in the fantasy zone looking for Opa Opa. But right now, we have a very special guest joining us, Mr. Tom Zito of Digital Pictures. So without further ado, let's give him a call. This is the Segabit Swing and Report Show. I'm Barry. I'm the admin and uh, editor, writer. I do a lot of duties at segabits.com. And um, joining us, we have Tom Zito of Digital Pictures, a co-founder working on several full-motion video game productions, including Corpse Killer, Supreme Warrior, the Make My Video series, and Night Trap, and many more. Hello, Tom. Hi, Barry. Thank you for having me on the show. Yeah, thanks for joining me. Uh, I really am really interested in just the history of uh, Digital Pictures and uh, Night Trap, and as well as Night Trap Revamped, which is a Kickstarter project to relaunch Night Trap for modern platforms uh, featuring high-quality sound and video. I believe that's an adequate description, yeah? I think it's a perfect description, <laughs> yes. So um, I guess to begin, I, I wanted to go back in time to the uh, Control Vision or the Nemo. Sure. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that platform? Absolutely. So, and I'm going to date myself in doing so. Uh Thanksgiving weekend of 1985, wow. I had been working for about five or six months with Nolan Bushnell, the guy who putatively invented Pong, although in point of fact, Al Alcorn, who was an engineer who worked with Nolan, was actually the guy who created Pong, but no one certainly took credit for creating Pong. Um, I, I had moved to California to help Nolan start a kind of high-tech toy company. The name of the company was Axlon, and that holiday season, that Thanksgiving of 1985, was starting up. Axlon was selling uh, a couple of products. We had a product called uh, AG Bear, which was a plush bear, teddy bear, that had some electronics in it so that when you talked to the bear, it would kind of mumble back to you in a seemingly articulate, articulated Speech pattern, although it was just mumbles. Mm -hmm. uh, and we also had a little robotic cat <laughs> that was called Petster. And we actually did $9 million worth of business in our first year of operation, which was fantastic for a, a startup company. Uh, but I was in New York Thanksgiving weekend. I'd gone back to the East Coast to visit my family, and uh, I am 
I was and still am a fairly uh, avid photographer. Mm -hmm. And I uh, had gone into a photography shop in New York called Willoughby's. Willoughby's was at the time the biggest retail location where you could buy photographic equipment in New York. I mean, it has since been enormously eclipsed by B&H Photo, but at the time, Willoughby's was the place to go. And I mean, when I say at the time, this is a time before uh, blogs. This is a time before reviews on Amazon. So if you wanted to connect with other photographers and learn about what was new and interesting. You had to show up in a physical place and talk with people. I remember that. I remember doing that. (laughs) (laughs) And on, on this particular Saturday after Thanksgiving, there was an enormous crowd of teenage boys in Willoughby's, which I found very odd because you never saw teenage boys in Willoughby's. It just never happened. And I kind of worked my way across the store, and lo and behold, here were kids lining up to play Mario Brothers on the NES. Hmm. And I was surprised for a couple of reasons. I mean, one of, one of the main reasons I was surprised was because it had only been kind of two years since Atari had gone down in flames. And, you know, Atari had taken with it a number of companies that had been making entertainment software for various Atari platforms. And the other thing that I found surprising about the NES was that the the graphics didn't seem to me to be a kind of enormous advance over what had been available on on Atari platforms. And, you know, I, I have spent a lot of time over the last 29 years trying to figure out hmm. what it was that made Nintendo successful when Atari had failed, and the only only possible solution that I was ever able to come up with was that Miyamoto was just so good at designing games that the graphics weren't that important. I mean, this was a guy who just was at the top of his game and knew how to make games that were really, really appealing to gamers. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, I... So... 1985 was the introduction of the NES to the U.S. It had been in the Japanese market for a season or two already by then, and uh, they were only selling them in the New York market. My recollection, Barry, is that they were only going to sell about 100,000 units. They had 100,000 units allocated to sell in New York, Mm -hmm. and it was pretty obvious watching these kids on the day after Thanksgiving, or two days after Thanksgiving, the day after 
so-called holiday shopping season begins in earnest yeah. that they were going to sell those hundred thousand with no with no problem. So so I bought one hmm. to bring back to California, but be, because but I thought there was probably a better way to design a video game system. I didn't really know at the time whether it was possible to do it, but it seemed to me that if you could combine the, the and I'm going to put the word graphics in quotes here, if you could combine the kind of graphics that you have on TV or on a VCR mm-hmm. uh, with, with gameplay, you would have a really different, interesting kind of platform for gaming. So I flew back to California on Sunday. On Monday morning, we had our weekly staff meeting. I showed everybody in the staff meeting the NES, and I suggested that we should develop a new game system that would use, that, that would connect between a VCR. Uh-huh and television, and allow people to interact with real images as opposed to computer-generated images. And there was a lot of there was a lot of chatter in the room when I said this, but Nolan kind of shut it down and said to me, see me in my office after the meeting. So I went to Nolan's office, and Nolan very presciently mm-hmm said to me, listen, what you were proposing in there was fundamentally turning this company into a movie studio. And, you know, we we can't do that. And, I mean, in many ways, Nolan was right, because the biggest reason that the biggest reason that startup companies fail is that they lose focus. Mm-hmm. And but he said to me, I'll tell you this. You probably didn't even realize it, but you were proposing something very, very interesting in the midst of everything that you were saying. And then he said, you can think of the VCR that is in most people's homes as a kind of mass storage device. Hmm. And if we made traditional video games, but... Rather than putting the code on cartridges, we put the code on VCR tapes. Hmm. We could beat everybody on price because, you know, the the cost in 1985 to a third-party developer to have Nintendo manufacture cartridges for you was somewhere between twenty and thirty bucks. Hmm. Yeah. And the and then the, the the game went on the market for between thirty nine and forty nine bucks. Um, Nolan's thinking was that we can make a VCR tape for a buck. And if we sold games for ten dollars we'd we'd be way ahead of the game. Uh, And it was a very interesting business idea, but unfortunately, 
it was not something that I was terribly interested in spearheading the creation of. So I, and then at the end of this long conversation, yeah. Noah's like, listen, we don't have the money to do this. So if you really want to do this, you need to go find money. And I then spent, I mean, I don't know how much detail you want me to go into, but I then spent months trying to find some company that was interested in bankrolling the development of this system. And after a lot of fits and starts, Hasbro decided that mm -hmm. they were interested in doing it because now we got to go back in time a little bit. I mean, when, when the, when the Atari VCS, the video computer system, the original sort of pong machine, mm -hmm. Uh, when, when that thing came out, and then successively through the Atari 2600 and all the other gaming systems, um, they, they, they sucked an enormous amount of disposable dollars mm -hmm. out of the toy business. And so Hasbro was very smart in saying, hey... Nintendo is probably going to clean our clock again, and, and we would be wise to sort of get on board and have a system of our own. So, so Hasbro wound up bankrolling the system. Uh, they they initially gave us two million bucks to develop a prototype. Uh, the we, we made, in addition to doing some prototype hardware, we made this little game called Scene of the Crime, which was kind of a precursor of Night Trap. And Scene of the Crime, all you could do was switch around a house and look in different rooms and try to figure out who had broken into a safe in a house while a party was going on. I mean, it was, Scene of the Crime was created by Jim Riley and Rob Thorpe, the same two people who were responsible for Night Trap. Um, oh, wow. And uh, the, 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 guy, the guys at Hasbro were just delighted with how scene of the crime turned out and, and basically wanted to move forward. Now, again, Barry, I don't know how much detail you want. Oh, to this is to, fascinating. But... Go on. <laughs> uh, so... No, no one, no one became really upset with me because he, and there's some truth to this. I mean, he felt like I had gone behind his back and had created this system that required us to go out and make movies. And he didn't want that to happen. And he fired me. He called me up on a Saturday asked me to come down at his house read me the riot act and fired me and now I was in this very awkward position of having to call up Barry Alperin the guy who I dealt with at Hasbro Barry was the general counsel at Hasbro and I said hey Barry I got some bad news and he said, what's that? And I said, well, I just got fired. And he said, well, 
You know, we've been doing some talking here, and that actually might be good news. I'm going to fly out to California tomorrow, and we'll see how this plays out. So fundamentally what happened was that Barry came out and wanted me to leave Axlon and head up a, a new division of Hasbro that was going to develop the Nemo system. And... Uh, as is often said in business, there's no problem that can't be solved with money. Um, so Hasbro paid Axelon some sum of money, and Nolan somewhat begrudgingly, but with his pocket stuffed, allowed me, Rob, and Jim, along with one other then-employee, of Axelon, a guy named Jim Simmons. The four of us left to start this wholly owned subsidiary of Hasbro that, that wound up being named ISICS. And, uh, and the, the first time that I went to Pawtucket, Rhode Island, uh, which is Hasbro's, where Hasbro's headquarters is located, mm-hmm. um, George Dunsay, who was the vice president of R&D at Hasbro, came in to me. I'm sorry. He was the senior vice president of technology. And he said to me while he said, the boys and I have been sitting around trying to decide what your title ought to be. And uh, you're going to be senior VP of technology for Hasbro. And I said, George. (laughs) I don't know anything about technology. I mean, you know, I'm a I'm a former journalist. I'm not an engineer. And George said to me, you don't understand. At Hasbro, technology means two D cells. <laughs> um, so first I became senior vice president of technology for at, at Hasbro, which was a title that I had for about six months. And then we finished the incorporation of this other company that was called ISICS, and we basically spent the next 18 months building a prototype of the Nemo box, I mean, a, 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 a prototype that was ready to be manufactured, and making two pieces of software that were ostensibly going to be ready for the launch of the platform, namely Night Trap and Sewer Shark. And the other thing that we were doing in that period of time was we were building some development units and seeding those units to a few third parties so that they could start thinking about making software for the Nemo system. Hmm. And... In the probably in the last six to nine months, I spent most of my time in Japan trying to find some company that was going to build, manufacture the hardware for us. Um, We wound up signing an agreement with Toshiba. But 
one of the things that happened from 1986 to nine, over, over the course of period from, say, mid-86 to fall of 87 was that the price of RAM, mm-hmm. specifically video RAM, uh, just kept going up and up and up and up and up. So Stephen Hassenfeld, who's now dead, but at the time was the CEO of Hasbro, mm-hmm. had made an edict that, you know, I can't, I'd have to look it up, Barry, mm-hmm. but I, his edict was that we had to be able to build this box either for 100 bucks or 120 bucks. I don't remember what the the the... the upper end limit was, but the the point of the limit was that he believed that the box had to be on the shelf for 199 Mm. bucks or we were going to be in major trouble. And the price of video RAM basically went from about $20 to somewhere around 80 or a hundred bucks. And it pushed the cost of the hardware almost to $200. There was no way we could get it on the shelf for 200 bucks. Um, this is now, this is now fall, winter of 87. Uh, there is something called the American International Toy Fair that happens roughly the first week of February in New York every year. And it's when toy manufacturers show off their line of products for the upcoming holiday season. Hasbro had to make a decision about whether it was going to show Nemo, which by this time had we had named Control Vision. Mm-hmm. Um, the name was actually created by an ad agency. Um, Goodby Berlin and Silverstein. It's now called Goodby Silverstein. Andy Berlin has long since left the agency. Mm -hmm. Um, But they did a lot of focus groups. They found that the real appeal of the system was that people felt that they were controlling reality. Okay. So they came up with this name, Control Vision, which was a pretty good name. And... uh, you know, Stephen Hassenfeld <clears throat> had a very tough decision to make in the fall of 87. Do we show this product or do we walk away from it? And I don't know if the, 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 the I don't know if the gross, the, 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 the net revenue at Hasbro for 80, Six or eighty-seven mm-hmm. was about two hundred and fifty million dollars. The company is much bigger now. Although at the time, Hasbro was the largest toy company in the world. That's no longer true. Lego is now the largest <laughs> yeah. toy company. In the world. Um, but it was going to, you know, by their estimates, it was to, to, to manufacture inventory. And market and sell this product, they were going to need to put about $250 million at risk, and they didn't want to do that. 
And I think, you know, if I had been the CEO, I probably would have made the same decision. And so they basically closed the company down, put all the stuff in storage, and that was the end of that. So that's now fall of 87. We now flash forward to roughly... Spring of 1991. Wow, that's a big jump. What did what did you do in in between? Um, let's see. What did I do in between? I uh, I was a writer on a TV show for a season. Which one? You got to tell me. <laughs> uh, well, it was not a very good show. It was a one-hour dramatic show on ABC that was called Capital News. Oh, wow. And it, it was a sort of uh, it was a kind of uh, thinly veiled dramatic presentation of about the newsroom of the Washington Post, okay. where I had been a reporter for about twelve years. Oh wow! And uh, the, it was it was created by Christian Williams, who was a guy who had been my editor for a while at the Washington Post, and. David Milch, who was uh, the creator of NYPD Blue, mm -hmm. who would later create Deadwood, and who most recently, well, who then did John from Cincinnati, and then he had a he had a show on HBO last year about horse racing that actually got pulled because a number of horses got killed while they were shooting the show. But very creative guy. And, uh, you know, we made 13 episodes of the show, you know, a one-hour TV show for broadcast television is about 42 minutes an mm -hmm. episode. Um, Lloyd yeah, Bridges. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm looking here right now, Lloyd Bridges. It's an impressive cast. Lloyd Bridges from, from Sea Hunt uh, played the editor of the newspaper. Hmm. Uh but they, ABC pulled it after three three airings because it just didn't get right. news. Uh, so I did that. Um, let's see, what else did I do? Um, yeah, I, and I, I think that, that I think that was pretty much what I did. Work on that TV mm -hmm. show. So now it's uh, early nineteen ninety one. And Ken Melville, who was the creator of Sewer Shark. I'm, I'm at home in San Francisco, and I get a call from Ken Melville, who had created Sewer Shark. And he was working at a game company in Southern California called Cinemaware. And I can't remember the titles that Cinemaware mm. made. They were... They, they were very high-resolution CD-ROM games. And Ken called me up and he said, you're not going to believe what's happening right now. And I said, what's that? And he said, Mickey Shuloff. Mickey Shuloff was the, was the CEO of Sony USA. 
Mickey Shuloff and Peter Gruber. Peter was the head of Columbia Pictures, which Sony had recently to that acquired. Mm -hmm. He said, Mickey Shuloff and Peter Gruber are in the next office, and they are trying to buy this company Mm -hmm. because they want to acquire Surshark. And I, I said, Ken, that 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 just sounds impossible to believe. I mean, I I just can't believe that a big company like Sony would want to acquire a little software company to get a piece of software. And I said, on top of that, the minute they start doing their diligence, they're going to very quickly discover that CinemaWare doesn't own that title. But I, you know, I. <laughs> I, it just sounded so ridiculous that I couldn't believe anything like this could happen. So it just so happened that my brother worked for Mickey Shuloff in New York. So I called my brother and I said, hey, Bob, I, this is going to sound completely crazy to you, but I just got a call from a former colleague telling me that Mickey and Peter – are trying to buy a game that, you know, some colleagues of mine and I made five years ago. And my brother laughed and said, yeah, that's totally ridiculous. Well, 15 minutes later, my phone rings. (laughs) And my brother said, does this have something to do with trying to shoot rats in a sewer. (laughs) And I said, as a matter of fact, it does. And he said, you better get on a red eye and come to New York. So, again, to make a very long story short, and after being, having to sign non-disclosure agreements up the yin-yang, Sony explained to me that they were trying to develop a video game console in concert with Nintendo Hmm. and that they and Nintendo had decided that the way to make this console seem unique would be to have games that were fundamentally interactive movies. And somehow they had heard about this thing that CinemaWare mm-hmm. had. And so they had gone out to try to acquire it. So, I mean, I, I let, you know, Sony at the time, they may still be, I don't know, but Sony had offices on uh, on 57th Street in New York, just west of Fifth Avenue. I walked out of meeting at Sony, got in a cab, went down to 23rd Street, where Hasbro had its offices in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Barry Alpern, the guy that I had reported in through at, at, at Hasbro when I was working at ISICS, um, was still there. 
And I said, hey, Barry, listen, uh, I'd like to I'd like to license the rights to the, the games and the technology we develop, because I think there may be an opportunity for you and for us to make some money. So I I, 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 I licensed the technology back from Hasbro along with the games. Mm-hmm. Um, and we then spent uh, – Barry, did I say 90 or 91? I believe you said 91. Okay, so this, this is 1990. I oh, that's all right. Was, yeah. Um, we then spent about a year working with both Nintendo and Sony to try to help them develop this game platform that could deliver interactive movies, FMV titles, before anybody had ever heard of any such thing. And, you know, after a while, and, and it was a very, it was a very slow process. And it was, it was interesting as an observer who was kind of, you know, an independent third party mm-hmm. to watch the battles between Nintendo and Sony, uh, so, for example, it was it was very very hard for Sony to convince Nintendo that the medium of distribution ought to be discs yeah. rather than cartridges, because Nintendo just you know not only had that been their medium of exchange forever, but it was a huge pr- profit center for them. And they couldn't imagine how you could get third parties to spend between twenty and thirty dollars for to, to manufacture a DVD, a, a CD. It wasn't even a mm-hmm. DVD then. But, um, and uh, Sony wanted. Now again, let me let me let me also say that this this is pre MPEG. Mm-hmm. So there, there, there really are at this point no formally established ways that you can deliver digital video. So, so Sony had Sony had ideas about what's the right way to deliver video, and I and I will tell you that both of them probably spent more time focused on how are we going to make sure that people can't duplicate these discs mm. than probably any other topic. But and, and then there was you know there, there was the classic issue of who's going to control this joint venture, blah blah blah. And after a while, it just got very untenable. I mean, the, so so the way that was going to work was had this happened, Sony was going to put out. Sewer mm-hmm. Shark. Nintendo was going to put out Night Trap at the launch of this new platform. Mm-hmm. And uh, after about nine months or a year of our involvement, we just watched the whole thing come tumbling down. Mm-hmm. And it was then 
in probably spring of 91 that Sony introduced us to Sega. We had never met anyone from Sega. Oh, wow. And, uh, you know, and again now under major non-disclosure, Sega told us that they were going to come out with this CD add-on to Genesis. Mm -hmm. And they thought that FMV titles would be a great way to launch Sega CD. Mm -hmm. And so he then began focusing on developing titles for Sega CD. And it was was a real challenge because Genesis had a palette of 64 colors and trying to make video when you only have 64 colors is extremely challenging, Mm -hmm. to put it mildly. Uh, And the the bandwidth of the CD player was not that great. So, I mean, we could do full motion video, but as you well know, and anybody who had Sega CD or anybody who's ever seen <laughs> Sega CD, it was, you know, it was really the amount, the, the quality and the amount of video you could put up on the screen off of Sega CD was minimal at mm-hmm. best. Uh, so, boy, Barry, you've asked me one question, and we've taken about 30 minutes oh, that to was that. that. Actually, that knocked out a lot of questions that I had. It was it was a really amazing just journey from the Nemo through to uh, digital pictures. I wanted to ask, who who named the studio? Like, how did it? Uh, how did the founding take a take a uh, come about? So, six of us. When you say the studio, you presumably mean digital yes. pictures. Did you consider yourselves a studio? Yeah, probably. I mean, we probably did in some mm-hmm. way. Because uh, I mean, oh, I mean, sorry to interrupt. It's just no. You go it's, ahead. Uh, you go ahead. I mean, it's part movie studio, part game developer. So was it a challenge combining the two? Did you guys really? Did you approach it as a video game company, or did you say, all right, well, we can kind of start since we're starting from scratch. Maybe we can create something that hasn't existed you before. Know, that is that is a great question, and I think the the the, the, the correct answer to that question is that. I don't think we knew. And here's what I mean by that. That day in 1985, the Monday after Thanksgiving in 1985, when I walked into the staff meeting at Axon, mm-hmm. Nolan's Toy Company, I, 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 I had relatively little interest in developing a new video game system. What, what, what intrigued me was the notion of interactive TV. I really believe that if we could get enough Nemo boxes into households, that they would kind of act as a Trojan horse and allow us to unleash on the world this, you know, if, if, if I want to be self-deprecating, I'll say half-baked <laughs> idea. If I, if I want to be less self-deprecating, I'd say uh, this nation idea for what would it be like 
if we had interactive TV. Now, the way that I was thinking about interactive TV in 1985, let me take a step back. Probably five years before this, Tim Berners-Lee had come up with the, 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 the idea of hyper, hyperlinked data, really the, the, the sort of the genesis of the web, even though there, there really wouldn't be browsers and there wouldn't be any websites you could go to until the early 90s. I mean, I, you know, I literally remember... Mm-hmm. The, the day that I first downloaded my first browser, which was Mozilla, and, you know, there were about seven websites you could go to. It was, it was pretty limited. Um, so I, I had no idea that he had already proposed something like this, but I, in, in the course of in the course of going around and trying to find investors for Nemo, um, the, the the closest I ever got was to this then tiny little joint venture between two companies, one of whom doesn't even exist anymore, Capital Cities Communications, which used to own ABC in New York, mm-hmm. and the Hearst Corporation, which obviously still exists, they had this little operation which had not yet become the amazing barn burner that it is now, ESPN. Mm-hmm. And Steve Bornstein, who had been brought in to run ESPN, had spent some time in... You know, I can't remember whether it was Cincinnati or Ohio or Columbus, Ohio or Akron, Ohio, but Warner, um, before it was Time Warner, Mm -hmm. had done this experiment with interactive television called Cube in Ohio. And it was at Cube was actually the first time you could have any kind of on-demand movie. And, you know, that in and of itself was so revolutionary at that time that they considered that interactive TV. But but Steve, who had worked at Cube and had been brought in, had been recruited in to run ESPN, he, he bought into the notion of interactive television in a big way. And when I met with Steve... He thought that he could extract 40 bucks a month more from ESPN subscribers if, while they were watching a sporting event, they could choose what kind of statistics to bring up on the screen rather than the guy in the truck who was putting the Chiron mm. on the screen. And so, so, so he got it. Um, I had spoken at some point with some people who were, and and this was trying to get titles made for Nemo. I had spoken to some writers 
who who worked on soap operas. Hmm. And and they thought that so what they told me about people who watch soap operas, I'm I'm not <laughs> among them, but what they told me was that what makes people stay engaged with soap operas is that they like to see how characters that they either love or despise react when they wind up in different situations. And, 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 and so I thought, boy, what if you could allow the viewer to decide what kind of situations to put characters into? Um, and I thought, what if you could, while you're watching a newscast, if there's something that you find interesting, what if you could go deeper into that? Mm-hmm. So look, I, I, I had, and I learned this later, but I mean, I, I had no idea that, you know, what the cost of this would be. But I really wanted, what I was really interested in was trying to create interactive TV. So now we flash forward to digital mm-hmm. pictures. I mean, so six of us who had been at ISICS um, started digital pictures. And, you know, I, I think we all were in agreement that at least for the foreseeable future, we were in the games business. We were in the full motion video games business. Um, but for me, the the big win would have been if we could have figured out um, some way to get into the interactive TV business. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I'll tell you that at some point back in the digital pictures days, John Malone who ran Liberty Media, which was a big cable operator. Um, you know, he saw some of our products, and he had me go out on this roadshow with him, painting the future of cable as being the future of interactive TV. Mm-hmm. It never happened, but at least somebody else thought that this might be uh, an interesting idea. I mean, the, 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 the problem with creating interactive television, frankly, is that it's really, really expensive. And, uh, you know, we, at one point we sort of said, okay, look, we got to try to figure out some way to, to corral our costs here. we, We can't spend two or three million dollars every time we want to make a title. Although, you know, flash forward yeah, to now, right. and EA wants to make a new title and they spend $150 million. But but back then, the notion of spending two or three million dollars every time you wanted to make a show was, was kind of nuts. And we, we, we did one experiment to see if there was some way to significantly reduce those costs, and that was we, we, we went to Paramount and we licensed the rights to every Star Trek movie, every episode of Star Trek on television to see if there was some way to cut all that footage together. Oh. And, you know, it turned out that 
it was pretty impossible to do. In other words, e even if you could do the visual equivalent of Mamma Mia, by which I mean, you know, you take a bunch of ABBA songs and you rap. Right. You rap, you wrap some narrative around it so that you now have a Broadway show. Well, even if you could take all these pieces out of old Star Trek episodes, you still needed the rapper that they had to get inserted in. And that in and of itself was expensive. Yeah. So it, 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 and, you know, you know, I'll just say that coming, coming back to the present, and then you can ask me anything you mm -hmm. want, but coming back to the present, what, 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 you know, there, there were two reasons really that, we were interested in trying to revive Night mm -hmm. Trap. One was that over the last several years, Jim and Rob in particular, myself to some extent, had really been besieged by fans who said, hey, the only way you can play Night Trap is on some antiquated system, and, and, and digital video has gotten so much better can't you guys create a new version of the game? So that was one impetus. But the other impetus, in some ways, the bigger impetus is that if you go back to Nemo and, and you think about where Nemo was going to sit in the house and how Nemo was going to be used, um, you know, although it was engineered to sit between a... VCR and a TV set, um, it could also just as easily have sat between a cable box yeah. and a TV set. And in fact, I cannot remember the name, but the, the, the only person that ever actually wound up licensing the technology itself from Hasbro was a Canadian television broadcaster hmm. that would allow you while you're watching hockey games to switch the camera that you were watching the game from rather than having the guy in the truck switch the camera. That's impressive. So, yeah, yeah. And, and a very early and perhaps the only uh, real example of interactive television. Mm -hmm. but, but my point is this. Most of us back in the early days really thought about Nemo as this is how we're going to get into interactive TV. We, we, we never thought of Nemo games as being things like Super Mario or Sonic the Hedgehog or, you know, later in the early 90s, Doom. We didn't think of them as high-twitch games. We thought of them as interactive movie experiences. And I often say that it was what I refer to as the tyranny of the platform, by which I mean gaming platforms, Sega CD, 3DO, blah, blah, mm -hmm. blah, um, that kind of doomed digital pictures. Because I mean, if, if there was a from one perspective at least, valid criticism made of our games, it was that they did not have the kind of interactivity that lots of other console games had. And, and I think that now, 
in 2014 and for the last few years, for that mm-hmm. matter, this whole area of casual gaming is much more conducive to the acceptance of FMV games than than was the era of console games. So that was the other reason we thought it might be wise to try to put Night Trap out again, because there was now, in fact, a proven market mm-hmm. for games that people played in a much less testosterone-charged environment than... Than, than lives in the console gaming mm-hmm. And plus the hurdles gone, too, of um, the, the small video on the screen and the pixelation. Very true. Yeah, very true. Yeah, so pretty much any platform now has native support for really good digital video. Although I will tell you mm-hmm. one thing. <laughs> I, I'm, a, I'm a huge movie buff. In fact, I when, I when I got out of high school, I thought what I wanted to be was a movie director. Like, probably... 10% of the kids in the world <laughs> not having any idea what that meant. I just thought I wanted to direct movies. And uh, and I went to film school for one semester and left because I just thought that this, this was not for me. I didn't like working with actors. My cinematography professor, who was Marty Scorsese, oh, had seen 10 times more movies than I had seen, and I felt like I was never going to be able to catch up with him. So... I had no business being in his business. Um, But what I was going to say was that as great as DVDs are, because of my experience at digital pictures and because I just so painfully remember what all that stuff on Sega CD and even 3DO and then PC and Mac looked Mm -hmm. like, when I watch DVDs now, what I see are the digital artifacts artifacts in the video. I don't see the picture. I see the problems with yeah. the picture. So I still, even though it's become now hard to find movie theaters that project film, I still try to go see movies <laughs> to the extent that I can projected off celluloid rather than So digital. you can escape that digital world for a little bit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh man, that's funny. Um, <laughs> so I was curious with um, so with with Night Trap, you are is it going to be two K, four K? What's what's the resolution that you're aiming for? Well, I, I, I can't. Here's what I can okay. tell you: we have a four K scan of the film of Night Trap. Um, the, the 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 resolution that we put the game out will vary from platform to platform based on the amount. Let let me, let me try to answer this question a different way with a historical analogy. In the early eighties, when Sony and Philips were developing the audio CD, there were huge debates within Sony and Philips about what the sample rate 
ought to be for audio CDs. And the, the debate was solved in a very, very strange way by the man who was then the CEO of Sony. He was an amateur opera singer and loved classical music. And what he told the engineers was that they had to be able to fit the Ninth Symphony of Beethoven on one disc, Hmm. which in some ways is a very smart way to think about solving a problem. And in other ways, was a really stupid way to think about solving a problem. So Ninth Symphony of Beethoven is about 72 minutes. So you just do the division, mm-hmm. and the sample frequency they came up with was this very bizarre 44.1 kilohertz. Um, turns out that that was a horrible, horrible, horrible sample frequency to choose because it turns out that it's not a frequency that is very friendly to the ear. If they had picked, for example, 48K, CDs would have sounded much better, much richer, much less harsh than they do to a lot of people. Um, But then they wouldn't have been able to fit the the Ninth Symphony on one disc. So similarly, we got an enormous amount of criticism for putting Night Trap on two discs. So when we were debating what's the video resolution going to be, I said, you know what? I'm going to be an asshole, and I'm going to just like Norio Oga and say, we got to be able to fit Night Trap on one DVD. Okay. Now, depending on the platform, uh, DVD can hold more or less data. So... What we're going to do on the four platforms that we have announced that we're going to support Mm -hmm. is make the smallest possible user interface around the video window so that the video window will be as big as we can possibly make it. And then the video resolution will be whatever we can fit on the disc. Mm -hmm. So... So the game will be 1080p, 30 frames per second. But I, I can't tell you what, I mean, the, 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 it's really, the re- resolution is not the issue mm-hmm. here. The issue is the bit rate. I can't tell you what the bit rate will be until we actually do it, and it will be different for each platform because each platform is able to handle right. DVDs in different ways. Right. Uh, the, um, you know, there a, lo- a lot of people have asked us about developing for Wii U. We have applied to become Wii U developers. The interesting thing about the Wii is that we could probably have full-screen 
1080p 30 frame per second video running on a Wii because we could put the interface on the controller. That's pad. true. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things we also thought about was maybe letting people use an iPad or a, an, a, 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 an Android device as an outboard controller device. But then as we started to think that through, the, the, the number of permutations that we would have to have tested mm-hmm. just became too daunting. And we said, no, unless a system natively supports the ability to have a an outboard user interface, mm-hmm. we're not going to think about doing okay. that. Okay. And with the, um, I guess, the 4 by 3 aspect ratio now in a 16 by 9 frame, is there any chance that maybe the, the, the video would be off to one side and the um, user display would be on the other side rather than below? But you know what I mean? Like, is there any plans to shift? The, well, we could certainly do that. Um, The the developer that we're working with has two artists assigned to this project, and I am generally loath to say to artists a priori, here's how you should do this. I mean, I want to see what kind of things they come up with, but I'm, you know, I think the notion of having video on one side. And, and, and by the way, Jim Riley believes that he left enough space around the action mm-hmm. in every scene that he shot. So if we wanted to move around the frame, we, we can do that. Okay. Yeah. I, I, re, I was looking at the raw footage you put up there and you definitely, you see a lot of the uh, living room carpet at the bottom there. So Yep. Yeah, you definitely left the space. I'm curious, too, um, can we expect any deleted scenes or additional material, or is this going to be the well, game as is? Well, it's basically going to be the game as is, and it's not it's fundamentally because there really weren't any deleted scenes, and I'll, and I'll expand okay. on that. When we made Scene of the Crime, which was sort of our... inaugural journey into interactive filmmaking. Uh, What we discovered really, really quickly was that in many ways, shooting an interactive film is a lot more expensive than shooting a non-interactive film. So one of the things we learned from the scene of the crime experience was that the best way not to waste money is to have this extremely detailed design document that fundamentally maps out every single scene that you need to shoot right. in order to make a show. So the reality on Night Trap is that Every scene that Jim shot was used in the show. Now, there are a few scenes that because of some coding errors never were displayed in the original version of the game. So that kind of stuff will be fixed 
but there there are it, it, you know it's not like a Hollywood movie where in the process of editing mm-hmm. you discover that there's some you know what are called B stories <laughs> that you really want to take out of the movie and you just cut all of that stuff out and then when you put the DVD out you you stitch those things together and put them on the DVD there there isn't anything right, like that right from Nitro okay um, is there any plans maybe to make the game maybe have an easy mode or maybe a way that if you lose, you can jump back into this point you were at, like anything like that? You know, the, I, I don't I don't want to say that there are plans, but certainly these are among the things that we have discussed with the developer about, you know, how, how can we add functionality mm-hmm. to the game? Okay. And are there any plans for a digital release at all? And if if there is, would this be covered by the Kickstarter campaign? The, the, the answer is all of the above, okay. yes. Very cool. Um, I'm also curious, um, just the evolution of the game, uh, just stepping back in time a little bit. Um, it appeared on several platforms, you know, with the Sega CD onto the Sega 32X, do you have any recollections of the um, of porting to the Sega 32X and working with that hardware? You know what I I I believe there was a 32X version of Night Trap, but I can't swear. I do. It. I have it. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, we certainly did it for 3DO, and then we did it for Mac and PC. So those are all the platforms that we developed. For. Okay. So in upgrading from the Sega CD to those, and then now. Those to this, this is almost like the the third version or the third iteration of it. Um, well, uh, you could certainly say that. I mean, you could also say the fourth mm. iteration if you consider Nemo to be the first generation. That's true. That's true. Um, I'm curious too. Uh, um, now that video games are becoming more immersive um, than the hardware could ever reach in the '90s. Are you satisfied with the technical achievements that the industry has accomplished to provide uh, these cinematic experiences? Well, yeah, yeah, look, yes and no. I mean, as a guy who one, I, I said earlier, I'm a huge movie mm-hmm. guy, was probably from age five. I mean... The, you know, one of the defining moments of my youth was going to see the movie Lawrence of Arabia for the first time. I mean, it just knocked me out in terms of how you could use a visual medium to tell a story. Um, So to me... There, there is something about having actors on a screen that nothing else comes close to. So, I mean, I, you know, I've played Call of Duty. I'm not very good at it, but I've played mm-hmm. it. And while on the one hand, I would say that that is an extraordinarily immersive experience. It, 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 
it for me at least is a very very different experience than watching mm-hmm. a film. Um, now, you know, some people have criticized what we do. When I say what we do, I mean what we did at Digital mm-hmm. Pictures. Um, because they think that, by definition, a storytelling experience should have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And if you don't give that to the person that, in quotes, is listening to or watching mm-hmm. the story, you're cheating them out of... what it is that fundamentally defines a story. Okay. I, I, I happen not to believe that. You know, when I, I remember as a kid going to the 19, I believe it was the 1968 Toronto World's Fair. I believe it was the Czech government pavilion at the Toronto World's Fair that had what was what was claimed to be the first interactive movie that had ever been developed. And it was about eight minutes long and there were there were points in the plot where you had a switch on the back of the seat in front of you and, and you and the audience basically voted. And there was a there you know back in our Back in the day of digital pictures, there was another company that tried to do something similar. Um, you know, I, I I didn't find those to be terribly immersive experiences. If if I have kind of one regret mm-hmm. of the way things went down, so to speak, at Digital Pictures. My biggest regret is that we never got to release a game called Maximum Surge. <laughs> because Max- Maximum Surge was a really, really interesting game that, that was, you know, a, a narrative film, but it had, you know, it, it was a narrative film combined with Doom. In other words, you, you couldn't actually maneuver <laughs> Forward, backward, left and right in a video world. Then the, you know, the guy who was the coder on that game, a guy named Gene Kuzmiak, far and away the greatest coder I've ever worked with. I mean, he, he basically figured out a way to combine video game technology with video editing technology and, and, and computer gra- computer graphics imagery technology Mm -hmm. so that on the fly you were basically doing these special effects that gave you the 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 sense that you were moving through a real video environment it was it was an amazing amazing product and you know unfortunately because of some things that were within our control and some things that were not within our control. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, d- d- digital pictures wound up being forced into bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
as a result of that, Max never got released. But I think if people had seen Max, they would have been much less dubious Mm -hmm. about the real gaming prospects for FM. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is there any future for, for that abandoned game? Well, it's possible. I mean, look, if this Kickstarter campaign is successful Mm -hmm. and if it, uh, you know, if we are able to ultimately generate enough revenue from Night Trap Revamped, the first thing that we want to do is go acquire rights to as many of the old digital pictures games as we are able to. You know, we've talked a little bit. Jim has spent a lot of time actually thinking about what would Night Trap 2 be? Oh, okay. And he would love to make Night Trap 2, but, uh, is the, you know, we, need, we just need to see where all this goes. And would, if, if you ever did make a Night Trap 2, would you use the same technology, or would are you ever interested in using things like the new virtual reality uh, headsets well, that are out there? No, we, look, we, so if we were, if we were making Night Trap 1 today, uh, First of all, there would have been many more traps in the house. But more importantly, we we would not have had to have built mechanical traps. In other words, now you would be able to transition between digital augs and real augs Mm -hmm. and real parts of the house and digital parts of the house. So, number one, we could have made Night Trap now for less money than it cost us to make it almost 30 years Mm -hmm. ago. And from from the standpoint of what's happening on the screen, it would have been much more interesting. Hmm. Uh, Interesting. It's probably maybe the wrong adjective to use. It would have been much more varied. Okay. Um, so yes, yeah, so so Jim Jim has spent Jim has spent the last twenty years at a company called Stargate Studios, and what Stargate Studios has done is develop this whole concept of a digital backlot. Hmm. And what that means is if you're doing a TV show and you want to have your TV show set in Paris, Stargate guys go to Paris and they film all these uh, live video backdrops. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can then have your actors for the exteriors on blue screen. Right. And I mean, it looks just like they're in Paris. Mm. So if we were going to do modern FMV titles, those are, that that's one of the sorts of things mm. that we would do. Yeah. And it would, it would also work to your advantage too, just because if you wanted to film a scene between two characters, you could have that scene take place inside or outside which would just give you even more, uh, I guess, possibilities with the narrative. Absolutely, absolutely. So, 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 
were someone to climb back into the full motion video game bandwidth, mm-hmm. there there are many more things you can do now than we were able to do back when we were doing this. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I will say, like, I, as as a consumer who um, I didn't have a Sega CD at the time, but I did get one, I believe, in the late '90s, and I started buying up a lot of the software. Uh, when I first experienced the uh, FMB games, it was, you know, there was a real novelty to it. Um, but of course, y- you approach certain games like maybe Prize Fighter or um, uh, what, what is that? The um, Far East fighting one. I can't recall the name. Supreme, Supreme Warrior. Warrior, yeah. When when you go into those, you you go in thinking, all right, I'm playing a fighting game. But then you have to, I've I've learned that you have to kind of like backtrack and think, all right, I'm playing a full motion video fighting game. So there's there's a different way to go about it and approach it. And the manual especially is very important. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> I see I see people diving into um, Night Trap, and while they do walk through, people like hitting start, you know. So they'll they'll typically skip the most important stuff. Um, mm-hmm. so it's, it's really, I think to appreciate and to enjoy, uh, full motion video games and a lot of the digital pictures titles, you need to kind of retrain how you approach it. It's not just a fighting game, but it's a full motion video fighting game. Would you agree right. with that? No, Supreme, yes, I do. And Supreme, but by, by the mm-hmm. way, of the games that we put out, Supreme Warrior was my favorite. Oh, really? Game. I picked that up just last week. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I'm glad I picked that up. I'm gonna have to play that a little bit more. I didn't really have time to get into it, but it is. It I'd say Supreme Warrior does feel the most like you are within the game. There was those um, mm-hmm. the cuts between if you make contact with your opponent or if you don't. It's mm-hmm. it's pretty seamless. It's impressive, especially on the 32x with the um, with the larger yeah. screen. Which I was going to ask too. What so that's one you're most proud of? Would that be one of the ones you would want to bring back? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Which which one did you have the most involvement in, too, creatively? You know, Barry, mm-hmm. I'm not really <laughs> – when it comes to games, I'm not a creative guy. <laughs> so I, I I kind of ran the company and let the creative people do what they needed to do. Okay, okay. I mean, the, the person who was really the, the sort of the, the creative – engine behind Supreme Warrior was a, a woman named Amanda Welch. Okay. Or I guess it, that's her married name. So at the time, I guess she was using the name Amanda Lathrum, which is probably the name that's in the game. Okay. Uh, but, you know, that was really her baby. Um, and, uh, you know, she lived in Hong Kong for six months while we were making that show. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we shot at Shaw Brothers Studios, which is the oldest martial arts studio in China. Um, and Ron Ron, I went over to visit when they were shooting, and Ron Ron Shaw must have, was in his 90s. And he met me on the set and took me out to dinner. I mean, it was, it was just, it was very magical. <laughs> That's nice, and I, I wanted to ask too. What are what are what's your most memorable moment at Digital Pictures at the time? What's my most memorable moment? <laughs> um, well, 
was probably a morning. I mean, memorable does not carry with it uh, necessarily a positive or negative connotation. And I would probably say that my most memorable moment was one morning in December of 1993 when... I was walking out of my apartment building in San Francisco and noticed that there was a big gaggle of journalists outside the door to my apartment. And I had no idea why all these people were out there. And it turned out that Earlier that morning on the East Coast, um, Joe Lieberman had announced these Senate hearings on video game violence, mm -hmm. and they had used this footage for from Night Trap in the announcements. And so... You know, un unbeknownst to me, I was all of a sudden in the middle of uh, a news cycle, which was which was a which was actually a very uh, a very painful experience. Yeah, would you say though it was a necessary one for the industry? Um, yeah, yes and no. I mean, I guess I'd say like a ripping a bandaid off, or you know, something yeah, that yeah. was coming to I, a head. I. I I felt very strongly all along when we were in business yeah. that there needed to be a rating system for video games because my feeling was that absent a rating system, all video games sort of needed to be for kids. And, and, and I didn't want to see us, us meaning game developers in general, mm -hmm you know, have to be limited to making games for kids. I thought there should be games for kids, and I thought there should be games for grown-ups. Right. And I thought there should be games for many different segments of the market, much as there are movies for different segments of the market. And uh, so, yeah, in that sense, it's good that a rating system was created, mm -hmm. but... You know, it it, it, it it should have been done before. Yeah, that. and I mean, you you were very much on the same page then as Tom Kalinske, um, who I'm sure you know. I do. I and do. Um, I'm I'm curious too. Did you know Al Nilsson at all? I know he worked at Hasbro during the Nemo era. Yep, he was he was a product manager. For okay, us. was yep. he at all instrumental? I know you said Sony introduced you to Sega, but was he at all instrumental in any of the uh, partnerships between you? No, I mean, I met Al after... after okay, that. okay. I was just curious, because I, I know he spoke of Nemo rather fondly. So, uh, <laughs> but, um, yeah, so I guess... Um, I, you know, I've completely lost touch with Al Nilsson. I mean, what is he doing now? Any idea? He's actually, um, he's doing well. He's been promoting the Console Wars book. I don't know if you got a chance to check that out yet. Um, but uh, he's he's kind of come back. I, I believe he's consulting right now, but... Um, He's really been out there. He's did a panel at Comic Con, which uh, uh -huh. some of our writers attended and recorded. It's on uh -huh. it's on our YouTube channel if you want to check it out. It's Tom and Al uh -huh. and I'm, 
I think a few folks from Nintendo too, and the author of the book. But he's doing well. He's he's a really fun guy. Great. He's like a big kid. <laughs> he's a big yeah. kid. Yeah, very true. Um, I wanted to be respectful of your time, so if uh, if you just wanted to say anything to um, the Kickstarter backers out there, potential Kickstarter backers, is there any message that you wanted to send out to them? Look, we're, we're incredibly grateful to anybody who's backing this project, and it was really fans who were fundamentally instrumental in getting us to even consider doing mm. this. And, uh, you know, I, I hope for all of our sakes that uh, we're, we're successful at doing this because we would love to see a number of these old games and maybe some new games come about as a result mm. of this. Awesome. Well, I, I really, I wish you guys the best of luck. I Well, thank you, Barry. It's been delightful talking well, to you. It's been amazing talking to you. Such great stories. Thank you. Have a, have a great, great evening. Thank you so much, Tom. And again, that's the Night Trap revamped Kickstarter. Um, it's going on now, and there's, uh, I believe at the time of uh, this, there's about 19 days left. Great. Thanks, so, Barry. Thank you so much, Tom. Okay. Take care. on you.